Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, Advanced Basal Cell and Squamous Cell Cancers. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it's really, really, really appreciate um, working with everyone to help spread the word about this program. And um, we have on the program today over 233 participants, and you come from all of the United States, so from different parts of the United States, both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities, as well as international participants from South Australia, Canada, India, Netherlands, and United Kingdom. So really um, a credit to all of you that you're on this call today. Um, today's program is supported by Regeneron and Sanofi Genzyme, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our, introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medicine, Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, Dr. Wong is going to be presenting an overview of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell cancers and advanced squamous cell cancers, current standard of care, new treatment approaches, or the emerging role of targeted therapy, clinical trial updates, and managing treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Dr. Mesner, thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to uh, speak to everyone today, and uh, along with uh, my colleague, Dr. Stuart Fleischman, who will follow me uh, after the next uh, uh, 10, 14 minutes. Uh, but what I want to do today is talk about uh, an overview of advanced skin cancer, specifically advanced basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. What is it? Where does it come from skin? And uh, what does it look like? And how do we approach it? I want to talk about the current standard of care, uh, how we treat this. Uh, there are some very interesting new therapies that have come to the forefront, and I, and these are really changed what we've done, and uh, and uh, talk about the important part of how we got here from there, which is clinical trials, and a little update on that, and then a very short thing, uh, a few words on managing side effects, uh, and the discomfort and pain uh, that can come from treatments uh, of these cancers. So. Uh, where do these cancers come from? Well, skin is an organ. It is, uh, you know, you would consider an organ just as you would consider a kidney, liver, so on and so forth. It is the organ that separates us from the outside world. It's a very complicated organ. It has the ability to regenerate itself, as anyone who's uh, had a, a cut on their skin can uh, testify, and uh, it's a very active organ. Um, now, any organ uh, is susceptible to malignancy, and the way to try to understand that is that is to understand where in the skin um, uh, cancers like basal cell, basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas come from. 
Now, the word squamous is actually Latin, I believe, for scales. And if you look under a microscope, these the cells, the, the squamous cells in the skin, are the ones that actually make the, the, the covering proper of your skin. It starts off in the deeper layers of the skin at the, uh, at the level of the deep epidermis. And uh, these cells uh, have a pattern of growth and uh, uh, regeneration and maturation, and what happens as they as they grow from the bottom towards the surface of the skin, they actually die off. And what you have in the very top is this scaly layer under a microscope, at least that's why it's called squamous, of dead keratinized cells. They make up the outside covering of the skin. And in fact, if you take a bath, that's the stuff that's the ring around the tub. That's your basically keratinized dead squamous cells. Uh, that have naturally uh, floated off, and that's how you re that's how that part of the skin is uh, is is um, regenerated. Uh, basal cells are, we believe, deeper within the skin. They are close to where the hair follicles are, and they look different under a microscope. They're round, and uh, because they're at the lower parts of the skin, uh, they are called basal or base of, and both these cells can become cancerous. Um, they are different in the sense that they uh, do different uh, tasks, and they also come embryologically in different parts of your, uh, uh, from different parts of the embryo. Why is that important? Because that determines how we are formed. And so <clears throat> when, uh, when squamous cells and basal cells uh, become cancerous, they can do so because of instigating factors. The list is long. Um, and they can include chemical carcinogenesis, they include ionizing radiation, but the most important one that's common uh, in, a, in a common discussion is excessive sunlight. And we know that, uh, that sun, uh, pleasant as it feels and nice as it is to be outside, uh, excessive exposure uh, can cause skin damage at the DNA level. And we believe that that's one of the instigating factors that causes these cells to be cancerous. Now, <clears throat> the determining the, the 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 way you actually see these things appear in the skin um, is varied, but for the most part, uh, they form uh, a tumor. And I use the the sort of most generic uh, expression of the word tumor, which is a lump or bump. It's actually it's Latin for tumor. It's Latin for lump or bump. They form a nodule on the skin, and uh, and not to go into how to recognize it, but I tell. Uh, all my patients in the skin cancer clinic that, you know, in adulthood, uh, anything that changes on skin, it's deserving of attention. And and so that's the most important thing I'm going to leave with you today. Things on the skin that, that change, don't go away, and are persistent, deserve to just have someone look at it. And that's sort of the most generic, uh, but probably the most useful advice I have to my own patients. Having said that, uh, how do we treat these things? Well, uh, most of the time, they're very, uh, very, very minute, very small on skin when they show up. And so they're treated by what we call simple excision. Uh, this can be do, done by dermatologists in their office. And sometimes more elaborately, if they need a, a, a larger excision, they can be done by specialized surgeons. Uh, uh, we have uh, individuals who are called Mohs surgeons. They do this procedure called Mohs surgery, which is a more extensive excision. And if needed, we also have oncologic skin surgeons who are able to uh, to remove these things from skin and also to, to track down where any spread may have occurred. So that's sort of a, 
the sort of uh, the, the standard way to look at this. There are situations where uh, in which dermatologists can use uh, things that are put on skin. We call that we call those things topical treatment, where there are a variety of creams and uh, medicated creams that can uh, 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 shrink these uh, these nodules down or even prevent them from becoming cancerous. Again, I'm speaking this in generic terms, but I uh, but the the impression I want to leave with my audience is that there are multiple things that can be done and uh, and which may impact uh, uh, both pre-existing cancers and lesions that may become cancerous. So, it's, uh, so the, again, the idea I want to leave with you is to draw attention to things may be important um, and to uh, be aware that there are things we can do. It is not certainly far from a hopeless situation. Now, the situation that at some point was difficult was, is the is situation in which these cancers have become uh, invasive, have gone into the body, and have gone to other parts of the body. We call that advanced skin cancer, and, and, there's a, and of course, you divide them in advanced basal cell carcinoma and advanced squamous cell carcinomas. And by advanced, we mean it may exceed the, the ability to use any of the things I've talked about before, which is surgery, simple excision, even most surgeries, uh, or, uh, and, or creams for that matter. And so these more extensive cancers in the past were very difficult to treat because uh, these two cancers were relatively not sensitive to regular chemotherapy. And because sometimes they involved large patches of the body, we use radiation treatments to these flavors. But if they're extensive or wide, widely spread, that's not possible to do. And for the longest time, this was a very difficult part of oncology. But, uh, but the thing that's been in incredible in the past several years is that we've had these new therapies come forward uh, and it's 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 not possible to to uh, to over uh, express my amazement at how these things have really changed the way we've uh, treated these cancers and it's important to realize that all these things come apart uh, come about because of doing clinical trials where we find a way to uh, test these medicines in people in a way that's useful to understand how they work, useful to understand, well, first of all, useful to understand if they work, then useful to understand how they work, and then to make sure we understand uh, uh, the side effect profile and uh, to understand who uh, it is exactly that would benefit the most from these treatments. So that all comes from clinical trials, and something Dr. Fleischman, who comes after me uh, in this session, will be talking about as well. Now, what are these treatments? Well, uh, starting from uh, uh, talking about basal cells, I mentioned they came from the basal parts of the, the skin, and there's an acknowledgement that they uh, may become cancerous by uh, using the same pathways and mechanisms that may be active during embryogenesis when we were being formed in our mommy's tummy. So these are critical pathways, and they have names to them. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you about some names of these uh, molecular pathways, be aware that many of these, this knowledge came from examination of fruit flies and how they were formed. And this is how these genes were discovered. And many of them have to do with looking down uh, using a magnifying glass and see how, how these genes were affecting uh, fruit fly development. So uh, they have names like patch, hedgehog, smoothen, uh, and things like that. And, they, and that all describes uh, the way the skin may look or the wing of a fly may look. 
But it so turns out these genes are also very important in carcinogenesis, and uh, it so happens that these are critical pathways in basal cell carcinoma. So for advanced basal cells in which uh, it is not possible to um, to use uh, medicines or, or uh, sorry to use radiation or surgery or topical therapy to use these medications in these situations are uh, important. These medications are ones that impact what we call the hedgehog pathway. Again, these names come from examination of development genes in fruit flies. So, um, and, uh, and, and so these pathways are critical. They're driver pathways that make basal cells go from benign to malignant. That's important because there's a lot of discussion about mutations in cancer, and, uh, and there's, a, uh, there's, there's a prevailing thought that cancer is a result of mutations. But not all mutations are important. Uh, there are these mutations called driver mutations, and this hedgehog pathway is is a driver mutation that makes basal cell go from benign to malignant. I would say that uh, there are medicines for this that will impact this pathway with very good efficacy. Uh, we call them hedgehog inhibitors. Uh, there are several which are FDA approved, um, and so uh, these have revolutionized how we treat these cancers because they are pills, and uh, and uh, being able to uh, uh, take pills and really have an effective cancer has been a real game changer in basal cell carcinoma. I'm going to switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about squamous cell carcinoma. For the longest time, squamous cell carcinoma was very difficult to treat, as I mentioned before, because it was relatively insensitive to regular chemotherapies, and, it, and it's very hard to attack this with radiation because it tends to be, when it becomes generalized, very difficult because you cannot radiate multiple places all at once. It turns out that squamous cell carcinomas uh, are sensitive to, uh, to immunotherapy. These are medicines that go into people, uh, that, that we use on, on patients that, that, that turn on their immune system, that really takes a foot off the brake and allows their immune system to ramp forward. And it turns out that squamous cell carcinomas establish themselves in our body by taking advantage of our natural built-in uh, inhibitors or breaks to the immune system. Uh, we are walking around today with an intact immune system, but it's turned off. Uh, presumably because we don't want to react to every single thing in the outside environment, uh, pollen, a bad piece of uh, sushi, some taco that wasn't so great, whatever. Uh, uh, we are highly regulated, and it turns out that cancers, uh, squamous cell carcinomas, use this innate uh, mechanism that we have uh, to slip around our immune system. Well, these medicines, we call them uh, uh, PD-1 inhibitors, PD-1 stands for programmed death receptor 1, and again, that's named by the scientists, but it turns out that these medicines that, uh, that are given intravenously uh, go into our body, turn on our immune system, and can attack the cancer, and it does so in a very efficacious way, and, and, and what I'm telling you here, and also about basal cell carcinoma with the use of hedgehog inhibitors, uh, have really revolutionized how we treat these cancers. And there's one thing I want to leave my audience with is, this, is an incredible sense of hope and opportunity that we now have in the treatment of these cancers in the advanced form. So in the last couple of minutes, I want to talk about 
uh, where we're going with these clinical trials. Of course, we are now looking for squamous cell carcinomas for uh, other ways to activate the immune system. There's an active program looking at vaccines that may be uh, possible in this situation. And we're now trying to understand whether we can combine them with what we've known to uh, things like radiation therapy, which in the past have been also efficacious in limited form. In the basal cell carcinoma arena, there's been a lot of work trying to understand how best to use these hedgehog inhibitors, these pills, uh, looking at dose, schedule, where there's, a, there's a, a, an effort to understand whether they too may be immunologically uh, treatable, and that's, that's sort of in general where the field is going. Now, I tell my students, you know, the flip side of talking about how well things work, efficacy is toxicity, how to impact people. And... In the, in the arena of uh, squamous cell carcinoma where we use immune therapy, almost all the side effects from immune therapy have to do with that patient's immune system turning in and attacking themselves as well as the cancer. So uh, that is a large topic for another time, but suffice it to say there is a, uh, there is a tremendous, tremendous amount of activity to try to understand how to do this. There are guidelines, algorithms, uh, outlines, so on and so forth, to help doctors deal with this. It's why? Because immune therapy is active not just in skin cancers, but in things like melanoma, Merkel cell carcinoma, in renal cell carcinoma, in bladder cancer. We can go on and on and on. There's an increasingly long list. Uh, and because of that, the, the, these use are permeated into general use. Hedgehog inhibitors in, a, in the last minute or so uh, have to impact uh, in general, what I say to patients, our sense of well-being. It uh, really affects our taste buds. It can give uh, uh, changes to the way uh, nerves work, neuropathy, get tingling fingers, toes. It can give uh, alopecia, which is hair loss. These are things that are manageable by understanding dose and schedule. I'm going to end by saying that, uh, that if anything that you're uh, uh, sitting there hearing me talk, is, is the thing I want to leave you with is, again, the, the opportunity and hope that we have for these patients. Uh, for the first time, we are using not just the C word cancer, but the other C word, which is cure in advanced cancers uh, of the skin. And it's becoming uh, almost an expectation that we could probably do this uh, in a majority of our patients. So we work very hard on, on, as oncologists to get there from here. And so I will turn the program back to Dr. Mesner. I, I will be happy to take questions later on. Uh, but remember, hope, opportunity, and cure. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wong. That was really very wonderful. It's just a great way to start this call and really um, lots of wonderful information. I can see questions coming in already. So, um, And everyone will be given a chance to ask questions, um, given directions to ask questions um, when, when we're ready to start taking them. But I see some of you have been on calls before, so um, we'll be getting lots of questions, I can see. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Wong. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, continuing Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. Um, and Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing how research contributes to your treatment options, suggestions for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, sun safety guidelines and tips, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Wang and Dr. Messner. Um, Dr. Wang gave you a good introduction, or actually very detailed introduction to the sort of the mechanisms of how uh, some newer treatments um, work 
for skin cancers as they do for other cancers. Wanted to take a little step back uh, and, and speak about more of an overview. Um, research in cancer is something that is really important. All of our um, important um, advances in treatment, be it in surgical technique, in different chemotherapies, whether they're intravenous or oral, and radiation therapy, have all come through uh, clinical trials, both the idea that a novel approach may be effective and safe and that uh, it is uh, either equal or hopefully a lot better than one of the standard approaches that uh, we have to treat a particular type of cancer in a particular type of place in a particular person. Um, it's really, the, the, the contribution in cancer is extremely high. And it's important for everybody to realize that um, many research trials, many clinical trials are available in your neighborhood um, at the 1,500 accredited cancer centers around the country in addition to all of the National, Comprehensive, uh, National Cancer Institute comprehensive cancer centers um, throughout the country. Uh, trials are available locally. These uh, big institutions and the National Cancer Institute have gone to great lengths to make sure that trials are available in local neighborhoods and people may not have to travel um, out, of their out of their home city or clear across the country. Some of them are a bit too complicated to be locally, um, but many are available closer to home, or the majority are available closer to home. Um, and the importance cannot be stressed. Uh, we grapple with the idea that people still harbor a sort of a misunderstanding that this is totally, when something is called experimental, that we have no experience with it, or the, um, the really bad um, thing people say is, I feel like a guinea pig. Uh, but when you really scratch the surface and ask a lot more questions about it, indeed, that is never the case in licensed clinical trials. Um, and uh, I, I can't stress that enough. So um, as you heard, there are many approaches to uh, skin cancers. That includes newer kinds of um, surgery, even using cryotherapy in some cases, free, you know, a temperature change and freezing during the surgery. Radiation therapy is, um, is familiar to many of you. Just about cancer has touched someone in everybody's life. And many of us have heard about patients getting radiation therapy, as Dr. Wang mentioned. Uh, all types of radiation therapy are not created equally. There are kinds of radiation therapy that will actually go deep into the body. There are also kinds of radiation therapy that are limited to the surface. Um, sometimes people associate that with electron beam therapy. Um, these are things that uh, you need to ask about. Um, if indeed um, it, it's not for you, then your treatment team and the radiation oncologist would be able to explain if it's going to be helpful for your kind of cancer or, or if it's available and um, how to find out about that. Uh, in the chemotherapy world, there have been extraordinary advances um, in, in research. As Dr. Wang mentioned, um, it, we used to have certain types of chemotherapy that were used in, for cancers in certain types of organs. The world has changed in chemotherapy with immunotherapy or therapies that actually 
um, will um, attack cells with a certain cell marker, with a certain uh, protein on the outside of the cell wall, or um, if there's a certain genetic profile. Um, and what we find is that chemotherapies that were once thought to use for one type of cancer are now um, have been proven in clinical trials to be effective for a, a similar type of cancer that started in another part of the body. And this has really revolutionized the idea of using a chemotherapy. So there have been great advances. Um, it's not like the, the 20 or 30 years ago when um, chemotherapy, although good for certain things, did not cross over from one system to another like this as much as it does now. Uh, Dr. Wong also mentioned there are topical treatments. There's even a treatment used in skin cancers that is is a gel that is very, very similar to what we have in our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines that are commonly bought in the in the pharmacy without prescriptions, like ibuprofen. Um, uh, so there are many, many options available, and everybody needs to be aware to ask a lot of questions and to get opinions from people who really work in this field uh, all the time and understand exactly what the state-of-the-art treatment is and uh, to see if that's going to be available closer to home. Um, I wanted to spend a little more time, time after uh, underscoring the importance of clinical trials on skin cancer to really talk about how we can maintain ourselves uh, during the, the cancer treatment. You know, we sometimes think that, oh, it's just a little skin cancer. I think we also all have heard that. But my recollection from medical school is that the skin is the biggest organ in our body, and we really do need to take it seriously. Um, one of the first things that is commonly recommended is to, for all of us to examine our skin at least once a month. Um, takes a few minutes, need to take it seriously, um, sometimes with a partner because you uh, can't see every part of the body, but um, a self-examination of skin is a very important activity once a month. We know our bodies pretty well, um, and sometimes if we see something that wasn't there before or has changed shape, growing, bleeding, it really means that that's time to bring that to medical attention. Medical attention would, would actually then mean an examination by trained eyes, sometimes with a certain photographs uh, to, um, to document whether something has changed or not, and measurements um, in the quality of the spot. Um, very, very important, and dermatologists um, really have a Good, uh, a very important job beyond what your primary care provider would do in um, trying to find skin lesions. Re uh, um, protection from the sun is extremely important. We can't stress that enough. Um, sun damage, um, we are pretty convinced, is an important factor in, um, in skin cancers. And uh, there are many, many types of sun protective agents or sunblocks or uh, suntan lotions, as some of us older people would call them. And it's really important to use them and use them well. Um, there are two types of ultraviolet radiations that uh, come from the sun, two types of ultraviolet rays that come from the cell. And they're simply called type A and type B. And the type of uh, 
of sunscreen that we need to use needs to protect both against ultraviolet A, UVA, and ultraviolet B, UVB. Uh, we also need to be really careful about the type of um, the time route in the sun. We need to really be cognizant, be really um, keep track of the time of day uh, that we're outside, what season it is, what altitude we're at. Um, if it's cloudy or not, we still can get lots of ultraviolet rays coming to the sun, even when it seems cloudy. Even if we're in a place that has a lot of reflection, like if we're out in the snow, there's still a lot of UV rays that come onto our skin, even though we certainly don't associate that like we do with us in a snowstorm like we do with a beach. Uh, even the distance from the equator counts. All of those things really need to be kept in mind when thinking about minimizing ultraviolet exposure. Um, the, um, the labeling on uh, sunscreens is sometimes very confusing, but look, about, look at um, the basic things that it protects against both UVA and UVB. Each of the sunscreens has an SPF, or a sun protective factor number. Most people believe the higher number is better. Just, just for an example, uh, from what I've, been, uh, what I've learned about this, SPF 15 uh, is known to block about 93% of sun exposure, where SPF 100 is known to block about 99% exposure. So the higher you go, uh, the smaller inc the increment is of blockage, and you need to figure out based upon price and based upon the type of chemicals that are in it, um, what you can afford and what is best for you. Many people like one brand or another. Um, there are different types of skin, of skin protectants. Some actually enter the skin. Some actually just coat the skin. The most important thing is to use it and use it properly. A um, uh, number of people think just buying the product is enough. It is not. It needs to be applied. It needs to be, be applied regularly. Some of them are called waterproof, uh, but even a waterproof skin protectant or waterproof sunscreen needs to be reapplied within every two hours or so in order to keep up a good barrier against the UVA and UVB rays. So read the label. Um, we really think about using an ounce, which is like about a shot glass of uh, sun sunscreen every two hours all over the body in order for them to be really effective. Other, there are other very smart and maybe even simpler things to do. Uh, using a hat, there are uh, clothes that have a tight weave can help protect us against the sun. There are also specially made clothes that have a sun protective factor rating, so they're actually known to um, protect the skin from the UVA and UVB rays based upon the kind of fabric and the kind of the, the, the weaving technique that's used to make the clothing. Um, again, really important to consider all these things. It's not just about sunscreen, but you can really protect yourself um, quite a bit. Some of us forget about some um, places that just seem minor, like the tips of our ears or our lips, and there are, could be special products used for that. There are some special um, sunscreens that are in a um, little tube that uh, can be used on the lips very safely. really need to think about looking uh, all over and uh, certainly avoiding tanning beds. Tanning beds is, are one of those things that cropped up when people associated a good tan with a healthy body. 
And um, it may seem that way when we look at movies or we look at ads, but tanning beds are pretty dangerous, and we need to avoid them as much as possible. Other people ask about vitamin D, and vitamin D is something we all need, but we get vitamin D from a variety of sources, mostly from a lot of fruits and vegetables. Um, some of our, this vitamin D in some of our enriched milk, some of us take vitamin D supplements. There is no need to risk skin cancer just to get vitamin D. There are alternative ways to do that, and again, um, your primary care provider would be um, a really good place um, to start um, to find out about what's best for you in your circumstances. Um, as far as... Um, um, as, as far as what you need to do during treatment for um, skin cancer, speak to your, uh, to your um, dermatologic oncologist, speak to the team. Often the nurses on the team have all the tricks because they've been dealing with answering these questions for years. But keeping skin clean during treatment is essential. There are a number of products that are out there that can be really, really helpful in keeping skin clean and safe that mix well with, with whatever treatment, be it topical treatment, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, um, after surgery, and the team can be helpful about that. Ask a lot of questions. Um, just be really careful about what you read online because um, there are some things uh, online that are really designed to sell products rather than to give you good, reliable information based upon science. Um, and it's hard sometimes to ferret out which is really valid and which is helpful and which is there just as a moneymaker. So ask questions of your team and make sure to go to respected sites because those, that's where you're going to get science-based information rather than profit-based information. Um, I think that we'd like to leave some time for your questions, so I'm going to turn this over back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was excellent and, and really very informative to everybody. I know there will be questions for you as well during the Q&A. And um, before we take questions, um, so stay tuned because in about two minutes we'll be taking questions. I just want to go over some of the services you can access for free from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and all of our services are free. And we provide both practical and financial assistance, as well as support services, including these educational programs, support groups, um, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers um, about your concerns. Um, we also have a program called Cancer Care for Kids, which really focuses on helping uh, children understand when there's cancer in the family, so really opening up communication between parents, grandparents, and children about there being how to talk to each other about the cancer in the family. Um, so um, there are many different programs at Cancer Care. We also do offer publications, so you can actually um, access uh, publications from us as well, um, so fact sheets also. So um, our website is www.cancercare.org or you can call us at 1-800-813-4673. And now we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, our um, Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And um, at the end, if we don't get to all of your questions, which often happens, I'll give you resources to get your questions answered. So Sonia, can you um, go ahead and bring us all on board and explain to the audience how to queue up for questions? Thank you. 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. The line is now open. Uh, yes, thank you so much again for your excellent seminar, Dr. Messner. Um, I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor. I have two questions. The first one, I didn't hear it. I guess it wasn't talked about today, about the genetics. Um, I did have the breast cancer. It's um, cured. But my question is, I had parents who both had squamous cell carcinoma in their faces, and they did laser. And um, my husband had also the basal, and his father had melanoma. I'm just wondering about the genetics of the melanoma, of course, it's squamous and basal also. What is the genetics about that? And is there blood tests that can be tested since I did have genetic blood tests? I'm wondering about that. And I didn't hear anything today about for side effect treatment. Um, of course, uh, is it possible to have um, acupuncture for the side effects for the neuropathy and also alpha lipoic acid? Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you, Stephanie, for your questions. Dr. Wong, could you address them? Sure. So I think the first question, genetics, is <clears throat> is really a relevant one as, as well as side effects. Uh, so, yes, there are genetic uh, uh, issues, but I, I tell folks the strongest genetic predisposition is the fact that our children inherit from, inherit from us or we from our parents, you know, the, the, our, their good looks, their, their, you know, their hair pattern. Uh, Dr. Fleischman is talking about uh, wearing a hat. Uh, Dr. Wong here is like, uh, you, know, um, you know, bald as a cue ball. So I blame my mother for that. But, you know, so you do have genetic issues. And, by the way, you grow up together, you vacation together, you go to the lake house together, you go fishing together. So all the environmental exposure things go together. But there are some genes that, that uh, will put people uh, at higher risk. Um, they are characterized by uh, cancers in general that show up when people are uh, in, in their youth or younger. So a rule of thumb for many of us is that we see a patient that has multiple hits from the same um, uh, cancer in younger members of the family and they themselves have it, that's a signal for uh, geneticists to have a look. I work hand-in-hand -hand with the geneticist because of the fact that uh, it's it's not productive to sequence an entire human genome of 78,000 genes to figure out what's going on because that's, that's going to have just too much noise for the variation and people will be helpful. But if we see a syndrome or a cause, uh, or some sort of a clue as to what genes we're looking at, that's a much more fruitful endeavor, number one. So, yes, there are genetic issues. There, there are, uh, you know, basal nevo syndrome, Gorlin syndrome that goes with basal cell carcinomas. These are very specific genetic mutations. Uh, there are uh, uh, a mismatched gene repair uh, and uh, gene, uh, DNA repair gene deficiencies that put people at high risk. Uh, for genetics, and what I think the most useful way to use this information is that if you suspect this is an issue, please check in with your your, your family physician or your um, oncologist that will help then sort of parse through the data uh, uh, and then uh, make a sort of productive uh, consultation with a uh, geneticist. Uh, and all the major cancer centers do have people like this uh, on board. Um, uh, there are no blood tests that we have today. I'm switching gears here to answer part two of the question. There's no blood test today that can reliably detect cancer in, in the blood. Um, people, there are things that we're working on. There are some markers that are helpful in other cancers, but in skin in general, this is not something that, would, that was found to be useful. 
Um, I can't really speak to the other things that that you you're, you're, that you asked about because they really are a very specific thing to to the situation, to the person, and uh, to the intended therapy. So I'm going to defer to to a discussion that you should have with your local practitioner who knows you best and can point uh, you in the correct direction. Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, so, um, and this is uh, for Dr. Wong. Can a dance basal or squamous uh, turn into melanoma? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I get asked that all the time. Um, uh, well, no. Let's make it <laughs> simple. And the reason is because they come from different parts of the skin. They are uh, different cells, and cancer comes from a source cell. Squamous cell carcinoma came from, comes from keratinocytes, or the, also known as squamous cells. Basal cell carcinoma comes from uh, the cells at the base of the round cells at the base of the uh, epidermis and clear near to the hair follicle called basal cells. And melanoma uh, comes from melanocytes, which are the, the cells in our skin that gives us that dark pigmentation, the tan that we talk about. Simple answer is no, uh, but oftentimes because all three of those cancers are associated with excessive skin exposure, and this is why Dr. Fleischman's uh, 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 talking points are so important, um, that it is not unusual for my patients to come in with all three. So my clinic, we call out the Dr. Wong trifecta for the young doctors, you know, who get confused about this uh, uh, because, you know, uh, you, we sometimes see this in the same individual who's had excessive exposure to sun. Thank you. And um, uh, we have another question from a telephone participant, Sonia. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mary Jo F. Your line is now open. Um, hi. Um, my son, had, my husband had um, basal um, type of uh, skin cancer, and it was surgically removed, but it returned in the same spot again. Is that common, or is that concerning? That's a good question. Thank you so much, Mary, for that question. Dr. Wong, do you want to start with that? Right. So basal cell carcinoma is uh, one of the most common cancers uh, in human beings, be, uh, again, and they tend to occur in sun-exposed areas of the body, particularly the head-neck area and particularly the face. Um, so uh, resection of these is a delicate matter because they're on the face and there's really, uh, uh, an, or in the head-neck area, so there's a, a very much a cosmetic concern. And oftentimes uh, we tend to be very careful about taking as much as we need to take but not a not a not a not a, a, a hair more to, to use an expression, not a smidgen more. So, uh, because of that, uh, cancer is coming back in the same place is 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 sometimes that we see from time to time. It just tells us that we have to uh, that, that we have to just take a little more in that one location to be precise. There are a variety of techniques to get at that. Um, and again, uh, defer to your your home doctor, your uh, home oncologist, because uh, there are uh, multiple sort of ways to uh, really get uh, the best possible margin once we understand that's what's happening there. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to comment just on the oh, the self-image aspect here in terms of how people feel um, that it may impact how they appear, some of these surgeries? Well, when when cancer is in a visible place, it not only affects how we feel inside, but, of course, how people see us. 
also uh, it's really important to get care by people who are uh, really skilled in each of these cancers. Uh, there's a type of surgery that is uh, helpful to many people, but not 100% of people with um, skin cancer. That's called Mohs surgery, which actually um, goes in pretty much layer by layer, and it's, um, it's a long day for patients. Um, but sometimes you're there for a few hours because each layer is taken off separately until um, there's no evidence of any cells of the cancer in that layer. Um, so it's, it's certainly not quick surgery, but it's the kind of thing that, that can be very helpful to preserve enough of the skin to have a, a, you know, a, a, a good um, cosmetic outcome, but also be cancer-free. Um, you know, all of us, uh, it, even having a cancer that is hidden by clothing or a part of the body that isn't generally visible uh, when we're out and about, all of us tend to feel strange after having cancer, uh, that, are, that we're threatened, that uh, it could come back, whether the chances are good or not from a statistical point of view. But the ones that are visible are you know, pretty much um, need a little extra care and um, sometimes even some plastic surgery is necessary to cover up the scar that the treatment leaves. And I know some centers, I know MD Anderson has a uh, self-image clinic where people are helped. There are, you know, a lot of different um, uh, expert, experts out there who can help with um, with um, image in terms of if something, if you, if, if a person's uncomfortable, there are things that can be done, um, whether it be a man or a woman, cosmetically, just simple things that can be done that could possibly really help that person to feel like they can own their body again and feel more comfortable. So it, um, it is important to recognize that um, no one's alone in coping with this. That um, everybody has is dealing with uh, different kinds of things here, but that indeed anything, as Dr. Fleischman said, that's visible, there are um, kind of, we have uh, all kinds of services, you don't think of them, um, but they are kind of rehab services to help someone to feel um, um, comfortable again in, in social interactions and things, things like that. So it's really important. Um, it's an important part of the whole treatment uh, planning. That's, that's a good point. There are a variety of cosmetic lines that are specifically designed to cover scars in men and women um, that are pretty good, <laughs> really, really good. Uh, but again, starting with the uh, medical piece and then going on to the image piece is really important. Thank you. And um, there's another question from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Um, Dr. Wong, what demographics are more predisposed to skin cancer? I'm sorry, can you repeat what? Uh, oh, say that what demographics are, are more predisposed to skin cancer? Um, in general, statistically, uh, folks that are, have, have darker pigmentation are less apt, uh, naturally dark pigmentation, are less apt to have uh, as much uh, skin cancers because they naturally have an a, in uh, a built-in protection from uh, excessive exposure to uh, UV radiation. But having said that, um, it is um, not at all uncommon, although at a lower statistical rate, for African Americans, for Asians, um, to come down with skin cancers. So that's very important to, to realize. Um, 
I also point out that, that for squamous cell carcinomas, uh, the cancer can occur not just from excessive skin exposure, but from things like uh, uh, inflammatory conditions uh, 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 is an example of that. Graft versus host, as somebody uh, talked about, is a inflammatory condition. We have to be very careful with that. And I should point out as well that, in general, uh, immune suppression, whether uh, th- that person has a medical condition that results in immune suppression or whether they have to go on to immune suppression because of some illness that results in the immune system being over-exuberant and needed to, to, be, to sort of be suppressed to, to, to keep their health in check, uh, to keep the disease in check and to in, induce health. Um, those are all situations where skin cancers can crop up in the right environment. There is also uh, uh, situations in which uh, the skin may develop for uh, other reasons, inflammatory reasons, uh, uh, wound reasons uh, uh, that that result in, in squamous cell carcinoma. And these are all agnostic to, to that person's pigmentation. In other words, it doesn't matter whether your skin is darker or lighter and those conditions of immunity, inflammation, and so on and so forth that I discuss, uh, those can all occur. Excellent. Thank you. Um... And another question from one of our online participants, uh, for Dr. Wong. What is the difference between cutaneous squamous carcinoma and metastatic melanoma? Um, so, uh, so squamous cell carcinoma, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, has come from the squames of the of the squamous cells of the skin. So those are the keratinocytes, the cells that I described being in the epidermis, that uh, become malignant. Um, melanoma comes from uh, um, melanocytes. These are uh, cells in the skin, embedded within the skin, whose job is to make pigment. So when you when you get a sun tan, for instance, uh, you what you have really done physiologically and biochemically is induce those melanocytes to uh, uh, to make more pigment, and so your skin becomes darker because of that. And those are the cells that become um, melanomas. I, I just want to just maybe say one more thing about squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, the question was cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, because there are non-cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. They can occur in internal organs, uh, usually along um, uh, what I call the tubes and tracts. Right. So how so skin covers our other part of our body. Uh, there are squam cells that can cover the inner parts, so the things like the, our esophagus, which is the quote the food tube, our GI tract, which is the uh, the, the nutritional tube of our body, uh, in our uh, genital urinary tract. Those are there are tubes and and tracts in our body which are covered by squam, which can be covered by squam cells, and they can become malignant. So those are non-cutaneous. Squamous cell carcinomas, and we usually call them by where they come from. So they can have squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, squamous cell carcinoma of the uh, bile tract, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and so, uh, squamous cells, importantly, have a designation that uh, that is referring to where they came from. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And a question from an online participant for Dr. Um, Fleischman. Are there any hazards in using spray sunscreen? The spray seems to saturate the air and is easily inhaled. Is this harmful to the lungs? Interesting no, that's question. A good question. Yeah, that's a, that is a good question. 
Um, I don't know of any official hazards. I certainly, when I would use them, would try not to breathe them in directly, and I certainly wouldn't use them on my face. Um, the uh, solvent that the spray sunscreens are in should be nowhere near the eye and the lips and the edge of the nose because they'll burn. Um, and it's certainly not, not and should be not used anywhere near the eye. Um, it's hard to then, if you're spraying sunscreen on, it's hard to use that ounce guide to, as we, we say, about an ounce all over your body every two hours would be ideal for lotions. Uh, I'm not sure it's, that's been worked out. Um, frankly, I, I find them pretty confusing because you don't know if you've gotten all over the body, where when you use a lotion, in, in general, they, they disappear, um, except for the ones that block from the outside where there's usually a sort of a white film. But with the sprays, you don't know whether you've gotten enough on each section to really be safe. So although they are approved and they're useful, um, my, my personal preference and from what I've been taught about this, the lotions are a lot better to control, a lot easier to dose for yourself, and a lot better worked out. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's an interesting question. Do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Wong? It's a kind of interesting. Uh, we haven't, this question hasn't come up before. No, I think Dr. Fleshman really yeah, hit, hit this one right on the head. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was nodding as he was talking. So uh, <laughs> thanks, Dr. Fleshman. Yeah, thank you. It's really, um, thank you. This is a, these are really wonderful questions from our participants, I must say. Um, yeah, very much so. I, amazing amazing um, how thoughtful the questions are um, from our participants. Um, and, um, we have I'm going to take one more uh, online question. Um, so um, so this this would be for Dr. Wong. My doctor has recommended superficial radiation therapy for my squamous cell carcinoma. What side effects involved? Is it preferable to surgery? Okay, so that that so when you make a treatment selection, there are very important personal characteristics, tumor characteristics, and uh, other comorbidities that may come to play. So, again, I want to talk about this in general terms because I give an example when I make uh, a decision about a a, uh, a treatment course, I'll look at you know what others uh, um, you know. Uh, issues as a patient have? Do they have diabetes or have an inflammatory condition to begin with? Do they have other issues with the skin? Uh, you know, is, is that person, um, that, and then I look at, at, at the characteristics of the tumor, then, you know, uh, what's the depth of invasion? What are the adjacent structures? What's beneath that structure? Because uh, then you help determine what, what the radiation effects will be long term. And then Dr. Fleischman mentioned uh, exactly this issue where there are uh, types of radiation, we can use alpha particles, electron beam, gamma knife, so on and so forth. These are all different radiation particles, and there's a bit whole part about math and physics that go into that as well. And and um, and, uh, and to my mother's great disappointment, I'm a very bad mathematician. But my point is that there there's a whole bunch of things that go into determining what is the forward course moving forward. And then the side effects that come from that are all... Uh, 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 based on uh, what I just said before, patient characteristics, tumor characteristics, and uh, and uh, other comorbidities, and 
and uh, and the type of particle, the intensity of particle, the radiation dose per section uh, per sitting, because it's never one time, uh, with rare exceptions. And so uh, uh, I think that's the best way to approach this question, which is to really say that there are a bunch of factors important. You have to uh, really uh, look your radiation oncologist in the eye and say, now having planned your radiation and knowing who I am and what you're planning to do and a number of radiation treatments and a dose, what is your uh, expectation for side effects, uh, both short-term and long-term in me? Thank you. Well, I want to thank you, uh, speakers. You've both been wonderful, actually, Dr. Wong and Dr. Fleischman, just uh, superb. And um, and then I also want to thank our participants because you've really asked such great questions. Now, I know there are more questions in queue, so I, I do want to direct all of you to how to get your questions for those of you who still have questions. So I think it's been mentioned a number of times that, of course, even if you asked a question on today's program or heard an answer to a question that somebody else asked, we still recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team because, as been said, many of you, of course, they know you best. <clears throat> they know everything about you. They know about your both about your um, cancer, but they also know about you in terms of any other health problems you may have. So <clears throat> always good to go back to your treating healthcare team. That's a very wise thing to do and, and discuss with them what you've learned today and and how that could apply to you in terms of uh, anything that you would benefit from from that in terms of your own treatment. And you also might be able to ask, we hope, more informed questions, just better questions just because you know a little bit more from today's program. Um, in addition, we always recommend um, that, that people do contact the National Cancer Institute. Um, they... Um, have a toll-free number, an 800 number, and they also have um, a website, um, and they also can tell you a lot about clinical trials as well. So it's a very credible site to go to, and when you'll be getting an evaluation of today's program uh, probably tomorrow, and when you get that evaluation, um, it'll include any resource that we mentioned during the program today. So you'll get information about the National Cancer Institute, how to reach it, um, and um, uh, and also um, its toll-free number, and also it has a live chat feature on its website. Website is www.cancer.gov, and it has a, a live chat where you can post a question, and their information specialist will get you information, which, again, you want to take back to your treating healthcare team. That's a very nice resource to have. <clears throat> um, in addition, we um, have a number of programs uh, coming up that I wanted to just alert you all to, um, and we have, and you'll be getting information about them as well. We do have a five-part series on life with cancer, so there might be some uh, areas in there that might be of interest to you. And we also have um, a program on taking your treatment on schedule, um, its importance in managing cancer, which is a, also a very important topic um, and particularly relevant to today's program. So I want to thank all of you for your participation today. And I, I also don't want any one of you to leave the program today feeling that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support, both from Cancer Care and all the other organizations that are listed that you're going to get more information about. Um, we're all here to help you, and it's free. And, so, and also your healthcare team, of course. They know you very well as well. So that um, please uh, pick and choose where you can where you can go for different services. It's okay for you to um, ask um, a question at more than one place because that's perfectly okay to do. And also, um, that's that's perfectly reasonable for you to ask uh, 
ask questions from your healthcare team and then to go to another resource and get a second opinion if you would feel more comfortable. But just recognize, and if any of you would like to take advantage of the service of Cancer Care, you can simply contact us um, at um, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.